Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Jody Henke. In this episode, I'm talking with Dave Mowitz, who is the Machinery Executive Editor with Successful Farming Magazine, and he's also the editor of the Ageless Iron Almanac, which is a collector publication. So Dave, how many years have you been working on Ageless Iron? Oh my gosh. Real short, great story. I'm on the road and we're shooting pictures for a successful farming magazine of farmer inventions and machinery that they built. Uh, every spring, we would be somewhere in the countryside shooting planters and sprayers and you know things that farmers had modified. We were in Nebraska and got rained out. I had a photographer with me. And so I had gotten a lead of a guy that collected antique tractors, which I thought was odd. And I figured, well, that'd be a fun story to do. Let's call them up and see if the last minute, because we got everybody else's out of the field, that couldn't shoot a planter in a muddy field. Let's see if he'd be willing to let us come by in a moment's notice to do his collection. And we did. We shot his collection. It was John Deere collection. Lester Layer of Grand Island, uh, actually Wood River, Nebraska. He's no longer with us, but his sons certainly are. And they have his collection, a phenomenal collection of John Deere's. And then I later wrote a story about it in the magazine. A couple things that were interesting about this is we got there and all this modern machinery was sitting outdoors and we find out all the buildings are full of antique tractors, which for me seemed extremely strange, <laughs> let alone the fact that someone would collect an old tractor and restore it. Normally, older tractors in the farm were used to run an auger or some side job. They weren't treated necessarily the best. They were maybe shedded, but it was off in the corner of the shed. So we shot this, what would eventually be a cover image of him sitting in a barn on a Waterloo Boy John Deere or John Deere tractor. And we got done with the photography. We get in the car. We're going down the road to the next stop. And I remember turning out of their driveway and turning to the photographer and saying, boy, those people got to get a life because there was this all these anti-tractors. So six months later, we run the story. We run the cover. I convinced the editor, uh, Lauren Cruz, then to say, hey, we got to run this as a cover. It's going to be a great cover. I did the story. And by rough count, I, I received over 1,400 letters. In no kidding. Letter. Wow. And that's rare. I got to tell you, it's really rare. If you get a couple letters off a story, that's something. But these many, and I, hey, there's something going on here. Well, eventually by hook and crook and by getting the support of Goodyear as an advertising sponsor, we started a series of stories in the magazine called Aegis Iron. They were extremely popular. They ran for about seven, eight years. And then that morphed into a magazine called Aegis Iron Almanac which is, lo and behold, today, Aegis Iron Almanac is smaller publication, about 16 pages every other month, and about 30,000 readers. And it's really my labor of love. I've got a full-time job doing yeah. machinery and technology, reporting for Successful Farming, and then I host a television show that we have on YouTube and RFD TV. And then the, the fun job, fun part of my job is to do the Aegis Iron Almanac which is a collector publication and covers the whole world of tractors yeah. and, and other farm collectibles because it's more than tractors. Tractors are their marquee. Mm -hmm. They're the headliners. But, you know, these guys collect anything that's not subatomic that is uh, agriculturally related. My favorite is hog oilers. You know, I, I actually <laughs> have three or four different hog oilers of my own because they're just so weird. So the hobby started out mostly 
50 some years ago. I have the more or less exact date that I found when I declared that the hobby started. It was what was called the threshing reunion in Wauseon, Ohio, where a bunch of guys got together and said, hey, we really love threshing. We're going to have a reunion threshing. We're going to get all the guys together that used to thresh. By the way, threshing was hot, dirty work. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what would inspire someone to get together just for fun to thresh. It's like, do you really want to get together and bail hay? No, you know, it's just, it was just weird, but they wanted to. The threshing reunions were a great way of camaraderie and eating a lot of food and remind you. And this has been 50 some years ago that first one of these were held. So of course that generation is twice removed now and no longer with us. So out of these threshing reunions became these tractor shows where people would get together and they had an interest in tractor collecting or they were collecting tractors and they'd still thresh, but then they started doing more and more things with the tractors. My first story on Age of Iron was September of 1990. So you asked the question and it yeah. took me forever to get to it. I'm like a politician. Um, <laughs> So September of 1990 was my first article in Successful Farming Magazine, and now I do this publication. Back in those days, the hobby was still small, but growing rapidly. And I claim that it's probably one of the largest family hobbies in the country, because it's a hobby that involves oftentimes the entire family. Grandpa and grandma, mom and dad, and the kids all will go to these shows all have tractors and participate. And most of its growth is not in agriculture, but the vast majority of collectors are city cousins. They grew up as farm kids, but they don't farm anymore. Certainly there were a lot of farmers that collect, but the vast majority of collectors, if you went to a tractor show, do not farm. I've always described antique tractor and machinery shows as kind of a cross between a county fair, family reunion, and a church social. It's all these kids running around, having a good time. You can take your kids to a tractor show and they're safe. The worst that's gonna happen to them is that some grandmother will feed them too much pie and ice cream. <laughs> you know, uh, it's fun because everybody participates in these shows and even tractor widows, and there's not many of them because a lot of times, a large part of the hobby is females that collect tractors. But those that don't, older generation women, oftentimes would revive old farmstead techniques like broom making and rope making and a lot of the cookery that took place. And they'd actually put on demonstrations at these tractor shows that you could see. They're more than just tractors parading. A lot of these shows are a cornucopia of everything that was agriculture of one era yeah. or another, going way back to the threshing days including and up to more modern agriculture. So there's a lot going on at some of these shows that you can really enjoy. So if you've never been to a show, make it a point to go to a show. It'll be a lot of fun, a lot of good food. And of course, if you've been to shows, you know, hey, my advice is pick a show someplace different in a different part of the country because you'll see stuff you've never seen before, which I had the great pleasure of being in upstate New York and seeing apple cider made and apple butter because that's the apple butter days that they hold or Washington State when they bring in the wheat harvest and the aspects of that. So everybody's trying to preserve what was once a practice. 
and they're all having fun doing it. So for the people who are collecting, you know, actually buying this stuff, taking it home, what's hot right now? I mean, what are they getting? What do they want? Oh, well, you know, and there's a huge transition that's taken place during this period of from when Dave Moats entered this hobby, 1990 till now, because back then tractors from the 1920s and 30s were hot and possibly early 40s were the hot tractors. Not anymore. Now the hot tractors are tractors from the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s. And that's because either older collectors have the older tractors and they want something new to add to their collection. By the way, you know, 1960s tractors are now considered collectible. I feel old now. I guess I'm collectible. I know. Well, <laughs> I've been long since collectible. Um and so that's the hot thing. Also, young men and women that are entering the hobby want to have tractors that they grew up with or their grandfather had on their farm or Uncle Tom that they'd go visit in the summer. So those are the tractors they want. So the hot thing now in the hobby is muscle tractors. Over 100 horsepower tractors from the 19 late 60s and 70s. And phenomenal amounts of money being paid for these tractors. It stuns me. One of the best deals in the hobby the older tractors. Let's just take a John Deere A or a Farmall C or a Minneapolis Moline U. These tractors that used to bring bigger money, now you can buy them at the state sale, an older collector, restored for less money than likely the collector put into the tractor restoring it because there's less interest in them, number one. Number two, there were far more of those tractors made the 1960s and 70s tractors, because the population in agriculture had receded, had really been cut in half or even to a quarter. So far fewer tractors were selling in the 60s and 70s than, say, the 1920s and 30s. So I will tell anybody interested in getting into the hobby, which I advise FFAers, and I help judge the National FFA Tractor Restoration Contest, I know you'd like to get a muscle tractor from the 1970s, but to make it affordable, go buy something from the 1930s because you can buy these things a very reasonable amount of money and then restore that tractor because you're going to spend a lot less money on it. So I can really get into the hobby fairly reasonably now by buying older tractors. Now, it's more than tractors though, right? I mean, people oh are collecting God. implements, engines, tools. Yeah. What else is hot besides tractors? Implements took off about, I'd have to just say roughly 20, 25 years ago, because tractor guys would get all the tractor models that they're interested in. They John Deere A's, I want to have the letter series. So now I've got all the letter series deers. Okay, what should I do now? Well, I'll start collecting the implements that went with those tractors. So they start planters and discs and mowers. So implements have been hot for a while. By the way, Implements are far more different than tractors, and I'm not being facetious because, of course, implements don't have a motor or transmission. There were far fewer of them around. Tractors are almost always kept around the farm, even after you got a new tractor, or you either traded it in and it got resold, or it just sat around the farm, like the John Deere A that I have that was my father's, because he used it for odd jobs. Not true of implements. When you had that two-row planter, eventually it went to the scrapyard, especially thanks to World War I and World War II, especially World War II with the big scrap drives. 
lot of that stuff got scrapped out or it was sitting under the trees and somebody would come in and just clean out the trees and all that stuff would go to the Iron Man. So we have far fewer implements out there. So they're highly collectible in some situations. And it's just fun to have the old implements to pull behind these tractors. Everything from that to hog oilers. There's a hay collectors. I think they're called the Hay Collectors Association. Anything to deal with hay handling inside a barn or around the field itself. So all the hay forks that sat in the top of the barn, the rails that went with it. They all have their little segments, their little sub-hobbies that they love. Corn items, corn huskers and shellers. There's a lot of tools. Tool collecting is ubiquitous. It goes beyond agriculture, of course. But a lot of guys will just specialize in farm tools. There's certain tools that we use on the farm. Anything that is collectible, anything that can be collected is now collectible when it comes to agriculture. Uh, seed corn sacks. There's a collector's association for seed corn sacks. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> kind of fun. I did a story on a guy in Western Iowa. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. But I walked into his machine shed. All the walls of this machine shed, sizable machine shed, were covered with seed corn sacks. It was like, oh, my God, I'm dazzled by all the colors. So uh, cast iron seats, uh, anything agriculture is now collectible. You know, long ago, they made clothing out of those seed corn sacks. And I wonder oh, yeah. if that's collectible, too. Grandma's dress when she was four, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So it's whatever they find fascinating. And the world of collecting, both within agriculture and then outside, has always been a fascination to me. Because not that I'm removed from it as a journalist. I mean, I have my little collections. I've got like three tractors. Well, four, actually. If you, I've got tractors in other states. i got to go pick up one of these days. But... It's fascinating how people take to collecting, no matter what it is. There's actually a sewing machine club uh, collectors now. You know, that's outside of agriculture, of course. But I teased before, anything that isn't subatomic is collectible. So we are a nation of collectors. I don't know why that is, but we just love collecting. To see these collections, and you'll see a lot of them at these tractor shows. You'll see the guy with hog oilers. Or the guy with stationary engines. Stationary engines were just engines that sit there and putt. And then they would drive a washing machine or a grinder, feed grinder, whatever. And I've always been fascinated with the stationary engine guys. Because they'll sit there all day watching their engines run. And that's it. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I guess. That's that's watching paint dry, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All this farm equipment has history. When we return, Dave tells us some pretty good backstories on the tractor companies during the early 20th century. Finally, an easier way to get commodity price updates. Successful Farming Live is an easy-to-use tool that you can use to search Chicago Board of Trade and local cash prices, all by using your voice. What's the price of corn? Find out by asking your smart speaker to enable Successful Farming Live. The Alexa skill in Google Action provides the latest commodity prices alongside tips from AGI. Remember, just say, enable Successful Farming Live. Well, you know, all this farm equipment has a history, and I know you know some of that history, like oh my um, gosh, like the time John Deere used his own money to prop up the banks in the Quad Cities during a financial crisis in the 1900s. What was up with oh. that? Well, first of all, I say I love the history part of it. If there's a thing that I collect, I collect history dealing with agriculture and machinery. I'm just fascinated with the history because... 
The history of agricultural machinery is the history of industrial revolution in the United States. Tractors were some of the earliest innovations that took place. In fact, I dare say that a lot of automotive advances were made in tractors first, advances in engines and transmissions. So it had a huge impact. It's no wonder that Henry Ford was so involved with tractor development. Being a farm kid, he was fascinated with it, but he also used what he learned from tractors to build his cars. So it walked lockstep with the Industrial Revolution and and advance the industrialization of the United States. But with that became all these fascinating stories that came up. And you're right, you touched upon one, John Deere. John Deere during the late 1800s, the country had suffered from several depressions, just not the Great Depression, but we would have depressionary cycles that would happen every 10 to 20 years, it seemed like. So the Quad Cities was going through one of these depressionary cycles in the 1800s. And John Deere prop up the banks because there was no government assurance of banks in those days as there is today. If you went through a depressionary cycle and you were a bank that had money outstanding and you'd lent out too much money, you'd just go under. And if you had your money in that bank, you would lose the money. There was no government program that said, oh my gosh, it's too bad the bank went under. But you know, the FDIC, that's mm-hmm. its purpose these days is to make sure that if you're a saver in that bank, your money's guaranteed. So John Deere realized he depended upon his workers in the Quad Cities to build plows and implements and everything that they were building. And he did not want to see these banks go under because it would affect his workers and he needed them to build equipment. So when the banks were failing during one of these economic depressionary cycles, John Deere stepped in with his own money and said, I'll guarantee all the banks so that they can keep operating. It's not the first time John Deere did this. And I've always studied the mystique of John Deere and wondered where it came from. Why does it have such strong loyalty? Why does it have the following that it does? Why is it so successful? And by the way, John Deere is one of the most successful corporations in the world. There are very few companies that have done what John Deere has done in 180 years of history. It is not only one of the oldest companies in the world, but it is also one of the most successful companies today. And that was from the very beginning all the way through its history, John Deere was committed to their service, to the people that they sold to farmers. They built a high quality product. It was well-serviced if it had a failing and a great dealer network. Part of their commitment to their industry was exemplified by John Deere stepping in himself and guaranteeing the banks. His son, Charles Deere, would do the same thing in the 1930s. In fact, Charles Deere, during the Great Depression, fought his board of directors and said, we will not foreclose on any farmer or any dealer. Now, this was exemplar. This was exceptional because a lot of dealerships were going under. A lot of farmers during the Great Depression were going under. But John Deere stood by the people that owed them money, which always explains to me why my grandfather was such a strong John Deere man, as was my father, because that company stood up for them and said, no, you know, we're in trouble too. Deere was not rolling in the cash. They were financially strapped as well, but they used their ability to step up and say, okay, we're all in. We're with you with this guys. And so uh, for that and a lot of other reasons, John Deere has become 
the massive successful company that it has today. I have great admiration for them. In fact, I contend anybody that gets an MBA today should have to take a semester just called John Deere. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's how you do it right in business. Look at John Deere. Caterpillar would be another good example of this as well. Not everybody should have the admiration that John Deere has. There were some (laughs) early swindlers in the industry. (laughs) Back in the 1910s and 20s, the tractor industry was... Everybody was getting into it. You had a huge population of farmers. Back in those days, you know, what, 60% of the population were farmers. So you had a huge audience for this newfangled thing called a tractor. Farmers were really tired of walking behind mules and horses. Although my grandfather still would tell the story about having to get rid of his horses with tears in his eyes when he got a tractor, but he'd never go back to horses. So The fact of the matter is, is that there was a lot of money. A lot of people got into tractors. Dozens and dozens and dozens of companies were into tractors in the 1910s and 20s. And some of them were doing stock swindles. What they would do is they'd set up a company, in one case called Ford Tractor Company, borrowing off the success of the Ford name. That company got its name Ford because one of the mechanics' last name was Ford. They made him an engineer or something like that and then named the company after him. So they could borrow off the Ford name to introduce a tractor that was really poorly built, badly, badly built. The thing was defective as heck. That was not what they were trying to make money off of. They were making money because they would sell stock in the company and say, look how much money you could make if you bought stock in our company. The company would last for two to three years. They would take the money that was paid for the stock and they'd bankrupt the company and walk away with the proceeds. So if you think stock swindles are new and they're a phenomenon of our time, no, this was taking place in the 1910s and early 1920s in the United States all over the place. Well, it turns out one of these companies, Ford Tractor Company of Minneapolis, Minnesota, was building this tractor called Ford after their guy named Ford. In fact, so much so that they beat Ford Motor Company to introducing the tractor. So when Henry Ford wanted to introduce his tractor, he had to call it Ford Sun. So the early Ford tractors were called Ford Sun because this guy with Ford Tractor Company knew enough to copyright the name. So these tractors were just dirt. Company lasted for about two to three years. The guy whose last name is P. Ewing, P, I forget, maybe Peter Ewing, would later close up the company, take all the money, And he was involved with several other swindles down the line. So there was a lot of stock swindling take place. But as Paul Harvey used to say, here's the rest of the story about the Ford tractor. The Ford tractor was really badly built. It was just tractor in the name only. So they were selling these. So the front would work to get the stock money, right? You had to have something to sell to show you people that, yeah, we're building tractors. So buy our stock. And a farmer, unsuspected farmer in Nebraska bought one of these tractors, William Crozier, which by the way, he farmed no more than 10 miles from where I grew up. I didn't know this at the time, but he, of course he was long since dead. 
But William Crozier bought one of these Ford tractors and it was such a bad tractor, broke down all the time. And he was getting no help from the company getting it fixed. He was angry. He was a state legislator and he pushed through, passed the legislation that eventually led to one of the first consumer testing efforts in U.S. history, which became known as the Nebraska Tractor Test. How about that? The Nebraska Tractors Test today is the standard worldwide of evaluating tractors. So it's called OECD testing today, but it takes place in every major country that builds tractors. Russia has OECD testing. India has OECD testing. Europe has OECD testing, all based on the Nebraska Tractor Test, which is still alive and thriving in Lincoln, Nebraska. They're still testing tractors there. And one of the coolest museums I've ever been to is the Nebraska Tractor Test Museum. Got to go there because it's the original building where they did the original tests. And it's one of the few places that actually has a Ford tractor. That's a cool story about what happened with the uh, good thing coming out of it and the yeah. first consumer testing in the world. Are there any Ford forts and tractors out there for people to collect or are they <laughs> pretty much in the scrap pile by now? The Ford tractor, the Swindler tractor, they're rare. I think there's no more than a handful, if that. I think okay. there's maybe three of them. However, Fordson's, Fordson went on to become one of the most popular tractors in the world. At one time, the Fordson tractor completely dominated the world. In fact, the best description I've ever heard by historians was, at one time, there was Fordson and some other tractor makes. They were so popular that John Deere and International Harvester were making implements to pull behind Fordson tractors. Henry Ford applied his technological advancement of unit line construction, manufacturing construction, which he used on his cars, to build tractors. So he is able to put out durable, basic rudimentary tractors at a cheap cost and did so all the way through the Great Depression and did so in Europe as well. In fact, the Fordson name lived on in Europe until the 1960s. It was so popular. So Ford at one time dominated the tractor industry by far and away. And then again, when they introduced their N-series tractors, these are the 8N, the 9N, 2N, with the first three-point hitch on it. They were a dominant player in the tractor industry. And so Henry Ford loved tractors, and he being a farm kid himself, but he also put a lot of effort in developing the Ford tractors. So um, we saw a lot of advances in car technology come about because of development of what happened with tractors. And a lot of this was, this is the fun part of the history that I love, is discoveries. 15 years ago, we were in a museum. It's called Stonefield Historical Site at Cassville, Wisconsin. The background story of this was that the McCormick and uh, Deering family had sold International Harvester off. They had all this stuff that they had accumulated over the, the millennium of International Harvester, and they wanted to donate it. Originally, they wanted to donate it to the state of Illinois because it was based in Illinois. And somehow the state of Illinois didn't want to come up with the money to be able to build a museum or to hold, house all this stuff. So Wisconsin said, well, we'll take it. So now the repository of anything International Harvester and McCormick Deering sits in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh my God, they have a gorgeous collection. All the posters and beautiful artwork and photography is sitting in Madison, except some of the machinery they got and prototypes went to 
kind of a living history farm in a Stonefield historical site in Cassville. So I'd heard about this, that they had the original brass prototypes built by McCormick himself, Cyrus McCormick of the Thresher. That's way cool, because that's really history. This is the little prototype he built before he built the Reaper. Had a huge impact on agriculture. So we went and did that, and they said, oh, yeah, we've got some other stuff here from that collection. And they led us through some other buildings. And here in the back of a building on a dirt floor was sitting a very rudimentary looking tractor. It had a sickle mower on it. And I mean rudimentary, and it was rusty, and it was just sitting there. And I looked at that, and I said, that's unlike anything I've ever seen. I took some pictures of it, actually wheeled it up. They said, well, we know it's an early IH tractor, and we don't know when it was. They hadn't gotten around to doing the history on it. And so I got back, and I called the guy who's kind of the leading IH historian, Guy Fay, And I said, what is with this deal here? And he says, you know, Dave, I've been tracking that. And let me do some more work. And I did some more work and we tracked it down to being one of the first tractors International Harvester ever built. It was only two or three made. They sent it to the World's Fair to show off this newfangled concept of a tractor. And somehow it got stored in a back room. There was two or three made, only one existed, uh, was left untouched. And no one knew that it ended up going to this museum the Stonefield Historical Site Museum, and they didn't know what they had, and they just stored in the back. You know, in the front, all painted up nice and neat is an Alice Chalmers, which was the original tractor mounted with rubber tires. That they knew what they had, but they didn't know what they had in this thing. As it turns out, that led I and a really neat guy named Graham Quick, an Australian engineer that worked at Iowa State, on a, an adventure to find the oldest tractors in the world. Because this tractor harkened back to 19, oh my God, 1912, I think it was 1910, 1908. That made it old. And so I did a story about the oldest tractors in the world, oldest existing tractors in the world. We found one in South Africa that was older. And then we found another tractor, the Ival tractor in England that was older than the size tractor. But the oldest one we found was sitting in Germany. It predated uh, tractor as an existing tractor, 1890s. There were older tractors, but these were tractors that still existed. So one of the oldest existing tractors in the world is sitting up at this Cassville site. So you can see a bit of history there. I hope you find that kind of fascinating. I did too, because it this is. is the fun thing about history is you feel like Indiana Jones. I know it's a little odd, but I do. It's like the time we went to a Case International, Case IH press conference in Burr Ridge, Illinois. Burr Ridge was the site where they did all the original farm oil testing. And it's still a testing site for engines for Case IH, CNH, Case New Holland. And so we were there because they were introducing a new tractor with a new engine. And we were in this modern facility and never let Dave go unarmed or not chaperone. So I and the, <laughs> I and the, the videographer for the TV show got bored and we started wandering around this massive massive building looks like the building on indiana jones it's that big you know the part where they're pushing the cart back so we get lost in this building <laughs> and we go through a door and i let out a gasp and the videographer thought i'd hurt myself or something because i turned on the light here was stored the original farm tractor oh there was gosh. the original cotton picker 
IH invented the cotton picker and there was the original cotton picker. There were all these early, it was like walking like Indiana Jones for a tractor, not like me, like into this wonderland of equipment. And one of these days we got to go back and shoot this because they've allowed me access to go back and see their archives of equipment. And they're finally, out of my insistence, talking to executives at Case IH or CNH, they're finally getting this stuff out and they're going to start restoring it, putting it out so the public can see it, to see some of the original stuff that they had that was there. Yeah, Yeah, that's important. You can research stuff on the internet all you want, see pictures, but once you actually see it with your own two eyes, it really puts everything in perspective. And And the farm all regular had such led to the farm all, which led to the general purpose tractor, which had huge impact. It was the tractor that took the last of the farmers from horse era to tractor era. It was the tractor that could be used for everything not only for threshing to drive a thresher and the power or a plow, but also you could run it down rows. So it'd make a great row crop tractor. And so that was the tractor that retired the last of the horses and mules in the United States. Another fascinating place, which I understand is going to become public one of these days. And that's the phenomenal John Deere archives. And I got to go take a behind the scenes trip of the John Deere archives. And if you go to agriculture.com, you'll see the video we did about this. We went behind the scenes to see the stuff that John Deere has kept. Oh my gosh, they have photography and artwork and letters from John Deere himself in this repository and some machinery too, like the original John Deere plow. And um, it was the funniest thing in the world that we walked past in the machinery part of this archive and there was the original John Deere plow sitting here, you know, kind of in front of me. And I'm looking over and I see something under canvas. And I said, what's that? And the guy said, well, you can't really show that yet. It's not been received, but we got it in to hold in our archives. But he said, I'll let you look at it. And we took it off. It was one of the original prototype robotic tractors John Deere has built. It had come back from testing around the world and now they're putting in the archives. So the original robotic John Deere tractor, which we will eventually see in fields, is now in the archive and being held. So there you have the plow that made John Deere and the robotic tractor that's going to be running fields in the future. So it's a fascinating place to go see. And to be able to stand there and look at letters that John Deere wrote himself and some of the stories that he was telling and interesting, fascinating backstories about the family and what was all taking place. This is a huge part of Americana, just not the history of agriculture, but the history of industry in the United States and the development of our nation is rectified in that. And John Deere has done an outstanding job in preserving this history. They really are to be commended for the amount of money that they spent preserving their history. So um, my hat off to them for that reason. But it's fun discovering these things. One of my favorite places to go to visit is the John Deere Pavilion in the Quad Cities because there's a lot of the old equipment there and they put on a phenomenal display. It's a beautiful, absolutely exquisite building that's been built right on the river, right where the old plow works was at. And so if you ever want to go someplace that's really neat, go to the John Deere Pavilion in the Quad Cities. And then while you're there, just take another hour drive and go to the original log cabin blacksmith shop of John Deere when he came out to Illinois. Oh, I got to tell you a great story. 
So history <laughs> stories. I told how magnanimous John Deere was as a man and he propped up the bank. The other part of the story, John Deere himself was originally a blacksmith in Vermont and his blacksmith shop went under three times, once because of fire, I think twice because of a fire, but the third time it just was bad economic times. This by the way, was really typical back in those days. Again, I've already established the fact that there was no government support at all when a business fell on hard times because of a downturn in the economy, you were screwed. I mean, you just had to leave and declare bankruptcy. John Deere was facing bankruptcy. So what he did is he escaped Vermont. He left his debtors back there and moved to Illinois. In fact, he left his wife and kids back in Vermont. Oh, golly. And moved to Illinois to start business, which was done a lot. Not to cast dispersions on John Deere because, boy, he more than made up for that little indiscretion of leaving his debtors. And he later paid them all back. But well, that's <laughs> I found it fascinating. He left the wife and kids back there. He eventually, of course, brought them. Oh, to I was going to say he paid the debtors, but did he bring right. the wife and kids back? Yeah, to he did. He did. <laughs> and Grand Detour, Illinois, they have the original blacksmith shop that he settled in. And that's where he got his start with a guy named Andreas, I think it was his last name. And now there's some contention as to who really came up with the plow. It's been contended by some historians. It wasn't John Deere, it was maybe Andreas that did, but maybe they did it together. Let's just call it even say they did it together because I don't think they'll ever figure that out. But then, you know, John Deere started from a blacksmith shop in a small town in Illinois. And within about 30 to 40 years had the biggest plow factory in the world. And in those days, plows were big deal. Plows was everything. He was making hundreds of thousands of plows and selling them all throughout the world because his plow was so well made, so famous. So it was riches to rags to riches story with John Deere. <laughs> and I just find that fascinating, that history of that company and some of the things. But you can find equally fascinating stories when you get into McCormick Deering and the McCormick family and their involvement, their early development of the international harvester tractors. Uh, but prior to that, to the threshing or case um, with a lot of the development they did with steam traction engines. You know, this, these were tractors that ran off steam. They were rudimentary tractors. Case, by the way, at one time was the powerhouse and steam traction engines, something like 70% of the market they own. So they dominated in that world. When we come back, Dave brings us to where the tractor companies stand today. Stay tuned. Finally, an easier way to get commodity price updates. Successful Farming Live is an easy to use tool that you can use to search Chicago Board of Trade and local cash prices, all by using your voice. What's the price of corn? Find out by asking your smart speaker to enable Successful Farming Live. The Alexa skill in Google Action provides the latest commodity prices alongside tips from AGI. Remember, just say, enable Successful Farming Live. Dave, it's amazing how many people wanted to jump into the game once humans discovered machines can do the work better and faster than horses. I guess now it's down to what you would call natural selection. One thing that's always fascinating about tractors is that we are really down to just a handful of companies that build tractors today. Mainline tractors. You have a lot of small utility tractors that are out there. But if you look at the big companies, you know, Case IH, New Holland, owned by the same company, Fiat. 
out of Italy. Well, they're actually now separately owned by themselves. John Deere and Agco with his Massey Ferguson and Fenton, the other tractor brands they have. You know, we're down to just a handful of tractor names. At one time, I mean, they're literally, I lost count at over 300 tractor names, that wow. tra tractors that were had different names. And I think it was either Guy Fay, the historian I mentioned before, or uh, uh, Larry Gay, another tractor historian, or uh, Lee Clancher, who's writing a lot of great histories these days. They figured that close to 700 companies made a tractor one time or another. So they'd make like 12 tractors, sell stock and swindle people, or they just make 12 tractors and never made it any further than that. You know, that's all they can make. They were a mechanic that would take some metal, an engine, transmission, sell a tractor, and then see if it stuck. A lot of them went under, a lot of them, went, the economy claimed them, and just a lot of them just dropped out because they couldn't compete as big players like John Deere and International Harvester came and dominated. So it's a very, very rich history you run into. But what's more fun about delving into the history is you can go play with your history. Can you say that about a lot of histories? That's right. Get on you your tractor and go. Your history. You can restore your history and then go play with it. And getting back to the hobby itself and what's so fascinating about it is it's not enough that these guys get together and show their tractors off, restored and unrestored, but mostly restored. And then they have a parade. Now we're doing things like tractor rides have become immensely popular. Hundreds of tractors driving down the road. A lot of times they'll raise money with these rides, but anything to get on their tractor and use it. They'll plow with tractors at plowing contests. They'll thresh with these tractors. It is a very active hobby that way. And I think that's what attracts people. This is really fascinating stuff. And I love how people are keeping the history of agriculture alive through the old iron and your ageless iron almanac. So thank you. Thank you for being my guest today. And thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody Henke.